0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In my first talk, I suggested that our culture had become infected with acedia, especially in two forms. First, a kind of rejection of responsibility, which perhaps in a slightly overwrought way I call a hatred of being, a hatred of place, and a hatred even of life itself. Although that's from Evagrius, you can blame him for that language. But a sense that responsibility just weighs too much and we don't want it. Um, The the Czech novelist Milan Kundera at the beginning of his novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, is playing off this notion from Nietzsche of the doctrine of eternal return. And there's a sense of whatever Nietzsche means by that, that you want to have a life where your actions and choices can bear such weight that that action could occur again and again and recur again for eternity and kind of be up to the task of happening again. But then Kundera, or at least the the voice in the novel, says, why do we want weight? Why not prefer instead lightness? Sort of freedom. If you're aware, if you know the the story of the three metamorphoses in Nietzsche, you have the camel and the lion and the child. And the camel loves its load and its duties and its obligations. And the lion discovers that it needs to reveal all of those obligations as arbitrary and false so as to remove them so that the child can finally emerge and be free to create value for themselves. I think at our own moment, one of the great temptations so many people face is they would rather have a kind of unbearable lightness to their life rather than weight. It's one of the reasons, I think, why we see marriage in, in, in such precipitous decline. Uh, we now have more single households with single heads of the household than we do married families in the United States. And a lot of that just simply seems to be, it's too much responsibility. I'd rather maintain my freedom. That's sloth, I think. The second form of sloth that I suggested is sadness at the divine good, and particularly a sadness that God's offer of his friendship and communion requires too much of us. It asks us to change, and we feel that request to change as a kind of loss or a sacrifice that we don't view to be worth the good provided, even though that good, which is promised to us if we have that change and if we accept that offer of friendship, is eternal beatitude with God in the kingdom forever. Eh, Rather not. One of you brought up to me the the other night that that famous C.S. Lewis example of the child playing with mud pies and they're offered a chance to go to the shore and they'd rather stay with the mud pies. That is also a form of sloth. But knowing that there is no ultimate end to our actions or resisting that ultimate end, We are attempting to create ersatz meaning through the particularities of our lives and its satisfactions and its accomplishments. But we're well aware, just through ordinary human experience, that those accomplishments and satisfactions don't provide what we're looking for. We know, and it can't be eradicated from the human heart, that the heart is restless till it rests in God. And the next victory, the next exam, the next accomplishment, the next promotion, as fine as that is, is not beatitude. It's not felicity in the ultimate sense. And so those things are viewed by us both as having more meaning than they can possibly bear, right? Like getting that first job or getting access to the medical school of your choice, as wonderful as that is, just can't bear the load of all of your deepest hopes and dreams for felicity because your deepest dreams and felicity are for God. But you know that it can't wear, bear that kind of weight. It's not that significant to get into medical school pretty significant. It's not that kind of, it can't bear that kind of weight. And so in a kind of frenzy, it's the medical school and the accomplishments and the publications and the awards and a bespoke disciplined life, which can look like a kind of frenzy I'm suggesting. And that's sloth too. That's from last night. So we don't want to just avoid the symptoms. We're not looking for techniques to cope with Achadia, A sort of way to get through the day, right? One feels anxiety, one feels melancholy, one feels dread, one feels enemy or disenchantment. It's not simply enough to sort of find a way to cope with that until the next distraction. I'm trying here to suggest for your consideration, and I've got no master plan. Um, I'm trying to suggest for your consideration a few ways that we could perhaps not just deal with the symptoms, not just put a band-aid, a salve on the wound, but get to the root, get to the cause and cope with that. Okay. And I'm going to start, my wife would laugh at this. She says that whenever I give a talk and I say, in the end, I'll give some concrete examples. She always says, I'm not sure you know the meaning of the term concrete. Like a concrete example is not you know, some talk about the virtues in Aristotle. I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, um, I don't think you know the meaning of that word. Um, I'm going to try to start with this kind of, or have this kind of arc. I think that we are caught up societally into a narrative of Achadia and from that narrative, that big story of the meaning of life or the absence of meaning of life, we create the practices of our life, how we live and move within the big story. And then those practices shape our character and shape our habitus until we become the sort of person made or resulting from those practices in keeping with the narrative. So I want to start with very abstraction, very abstract, which is a counter-narrative to the story of disenchantment, which I think is driving a Chadian contemporary society. And from there, suggest a few practices, the concrete things, um, which I think if one does those practices with an eye to the big story, the ontology of the thing, we can actually recreate or reconstitute our character and cooperate with grace so as to finally be free from the noonday demon. Big promises. You'll tell me whether it works. I want to start with another piece of literature. Very briefly, I can think of no novel or no novelist who better summarizes and exemplifies and portrays modern dis- disenchantment and enemy than the French novelist Michel Willebeck. Um, Caution about reading him. It's quite vile. Don't don't actually read him. Read about him. (laughs) (laughs) The index of books, I don't know if we still have that, but he's probably on it or should be. In submission, the not-so-subtly-named Francois, who's France, just has a life that he believes to be utterly pointless. He's a university professor, but he hates teaching. He hates scholarship. And he says that even though he's a teacher, he hates the young because they're full of optimism and life, and he's never resonated with optimism or life. (laughs) He spends his days with microwave dinners, pornographies, prostitutes, um, and a kind of serial monogamy from person to person, although he claims that the story of serial monogamy, which results in marriage and family, is absurd and grotesque, and he doesn't want to have it. Now, in the novel... And the novel became famous in its English translation because the day it was translated into English or appeared in English was the day of the Charlie Hebdo attacks. And Willebec made some incendiary comments about Islam in, in the West. And the novel is about Islam in the West and the Christian inability in France to sort of resist. Okay. In the novel, the Muslim Brotherhood has been democratically elected to govern France. Francois is not so hip about that, but he doesn't resist. He makes, he, he makes no act of citizenship. He doesn't even vote. The only action he does is he moves all of his funds to a British bank where it'll be more stable. And then he disappears to the French countryside for several months where all he does is eat terribly, watch television and complain that Wi-Fi is too slow. Which you 've all done, you know when you get on a plane and the wi-fi 's down and you're like, "My human rights have been violated here <laughs> and you get that little circle and you think the world is unjust that's all he does for the novel, but he decides to go to a famous statue of our lady in France, the black, the black Madonna and He's there. Peggy is being chanted in the back. The poetry of Peggy is being chanted in the background. And he has a quasi mystical vision of our lady who's holding our Lord, an infant Lord in her hands, about to step down, stride forth from the pedestal and recover France. Remember, his name is Francois, the first daughter of the church, right? Back to Christendom and back to liveliness and energy and a new form of optimism. But just as he's about to give in to the mystical vision, he concludes that this is weird, not worth his time, and he's probably just hungry. So he leaves the vision, orders some duck legs, goes back to his car, and returns back to Paris. And he rejects, in a sense, friendship with God. Now, that's a life of profound disillusionment. Profound disenchantment teaching is pointless. His work is pointless. Friendships are pointless. Religion is pointless. Marriage is pointless. Sex is pointless. His scholarship is pointless. None of it matters, and he drifts about. Now, I want to suggest that that is a world which is utterly bereft of transcendence. It's bereft of the sense that anything which is particularized is saturated, Because God exists, and here's some Thomism for you, because only God is his own existence, everything which has existence is sustained in its existence by the direct, ongoing, well, from our perspective, ongoing act of God, or from God's perspective, his eternal act, which says about the existence of that thing, let it be, and it is good. Everything is super saturated with the presence of God. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves, Augustine says. But so too, whenever we encounter any existing thing, what is it that is present to that thing? The act of God sustaining the existence of that thing so that the thing is not merely itself, but is at least in some way like God. Things are created in the likeness of God. Humans are created in both the image and likeness of God. Remember the line of Lewis, if we saw each other as we really are created in the image of God, we'd be tempted to worship each other. What do you encounter when you encounter another person? Someone who is another Christ. Someone for whom the Lord has died and risen again. And whose existence is sustained just now and just now and just now. Without any necessity but because God declares it to be good. You know that line from Chesterton? I love this line. You've, you, you've had a, a, young, a young brother, sister, nephew, or niece, and you've thrown them in the air like a two-year-old. You know, they sort of shriek with laughter. I like to take my, uh, my, she's now six, but when she's five, I love to put her on top of the fridge and then walk away. And what would she do? Howl with terror. And I'd go and get her and she would laugh with delight. And what would she say? What does every two-year-old say when you throw them in the air? A five-year-old, and you leave them on the fridge again. Chesterton somewhat whimsically says, why has the sun risen every day for for, for as long as the sun has risen? Because God says, like a child, again, it is good. In Genesis 1, we are told over and over and over again, God says it, he sees it, and it is good. We are not suzerains. Remember Judge Halden? We are not suzerains who get to countermand the declaration of God. If God declares that it is good, who are we to declare that it is not good and merely something to use or be bored by or indifferent to? It is good and declared to be so by the one who created it and sustains its existence just now. One of the tasks of the human being is to see the world as God sees the world and to be utterly enchanted by it. Wonder and surprise. To see it afresh, which is to see it as it is. So, I've got a story, a different story to tell you, which is a story of enchantment. And it's the story of in the beginning. You'll all know this story. You've heard this story so many times, we don't even pay attention to it anymore. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story of the Christian commitment is that the heartbeat of the universe is a community of endless outpouring love. It's not a community of violence or power. It's not threatened. It needs nothing. It gains nothing by creation. It loses nothing by creation. Creation does not flow out of an inner necessity. It's not just an outpouring by an inner logical principle. There's no external compulsion. There's no internal compulsion. God creates because it is fitting for God to create, because God is the sort of reality which pours forth in generosity for the thing which is the goodness of the thing which is created, not for God's own goodness. God gains nothing from it. Now, that story is true even internal to the relations of the Trinity. So, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son— The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Good so far? The Father is not the Son because there is a distinction not of deity or Godhead, but a distinction of relation. What is the relation which the Father is and, in a sense, does? It's always difficult to use language of God because it's always time-bound, and in an instant you'll be an Aryan accidentally. But, asterisk, what the Father does. This too is not God. What is it that the father does that the son does not do? He begets. What does the son do that the father does not do? Is begotten. begotten. In the East, at least, there's an emphasis on suggesting that we ought properly to think of the father as the monarchia, the principle. The father begets from his richness. Now, there's something which I think is incredibly important by this. Does the father lose anything by begetting the son? Is the father diminished in any way? Is there rivalry between the father and the son? When the father begets the son and, in a sense, grants, "Mm, asterisk by all this, I'm not an Arian, I just don't know how to say it in a poetical way to keep your attention without being an Arian, but I'm not an Arian, Does the Father grant divinity to the Son the way that I would grant you my watch as a gift, but now you have it and I don't? Does the Father lose anything? No. Now, you've had this experience, I'm sure. Have you ever received a gift? Is it always a delightful thing to receive a gift? Have you ever received a gift and felt obligation or diminished or resentment or anger? Because now you are in a subordinate position. You you all have, right? You're all thinking of that one (laughs) ant. That one ant. Is the Son diminished by being begotten? Is the Son in any way less God, less divine, less a full, consubstantial member of the Godhead, God himself, by being begotten and in a sense, in a sense, receiving? No. Not at all. The father begets, the son is begotten. The father loses nothing and is diminished, not at all. Because what the father gives is so infinite, so inact, so perfect that he can't be diminished by the gift. He loses nothing. And what he gives is the fullness without remainder of the Godhead. And so the son is just like the father God and not diminished, not subordinate, not created, not a second tier divinity, the ecstatic outpouring of God to internal to God is endless. Now, if you, re- if you know your burner, the father is the one who kisses, the son is the one who is kissed. And what is the Holy Spirit? The kiss itself so perfect is the gift of the father of to the son and so perfect is the reception of the gift and the giving back of love that the giving and the receiving itself is a person of the trinity without diminishment without remainder without loss that's the story of the universe that's the Origin of all things. Now, a God whose own inner life is endless, ecstatic outpouring of love and the receipt of love without diminishment and the giving of love back, such that the giving and the receiving of love is so perfect as to constitute an eternal third person in no way less than the first two, that's a God, the same God who creates the world and who creates you. That's also the God who creates Adam. Now, you know the story. Adam's in the garden. Genesis 1 is very nice, right? Everything's in their place. First, we get the order of things, right? We have light, which is confusing when you're a child, and then you realize it's all a story of form and then matter. So we have light, and then we have lights. We have water separated from waters, and then we have fish and fowl, and then we have land separated from water, and then we have things to populate the, 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 the dry land, Yes. And we're all aware that we get male and female, he created the image of God, he created the male and female, and it's very good, and God rests. But you know that there's a startling declaration in Genesis 2. If you've read Theology of the Body, you'll recognize all of this. There is a startling declaration in Genesis 2, which is, it is not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because he can't, in a sense, perform the divine image. So if the inner life of God is an endless outpouring of relation, while it may be metaphysically true that Adam has already created the image of God and has a human nature which is like God and images God, can he fully perform that image if there is not another one with whom to be in communion? No. Because the story of the universe is communion. Adam must accept Eve if there is going to be communion. Now, just as God needn't create, does Adam need to say yes to Eve? You know the story. Animals come by. I actually think there's a lot to think about. You can be mildly poetical here if you admit that you're being imaginative and this is not to be taken literally. There's there's at least four ways to read scripture. You'll grant me this one. (laughs) Adam has been told it is not good. Did Adam say it was not good? Did he know? Did Adam know it was not good? He's in the garden. It's very nice. There's no thorn or thistle. There's no sweat of the brow. There's apparently some nice fruit. There's animals. Maybe even God is around somehow. We're told that they walk in the cool of the afternoon. And some, does Adam? what's Adam need? Adam doesn't even know. Now imagine if you think that things are in perfect order and now God says to you it is not good. Do you know why it is not good yet? Things seem great. You're in the Garden of Eden. There's no concupiscence. There's no original sin. There's fruit. You have the body that Adam has and all the drawings from the children's books. (laughs) That's a joke, by the way. You don't know why it's not good. So, what does God do? We have the parade of the animals. Is this a kind thing for God to do? Uh, let me rephrase. Is this a nice thing for God to do? I want to suggest, not really. because what God is trying to do is evoke and elicit desire for Adam from Adam, such that Adam realizes it's not good. Adam has no reason to think that things are not good. God has to teach Adam that things are not good. So what happens? Here comes the giraffe. Nice neck. We'll write about it later in the Song of Solomon. Nice tower of an ivory, but too too tall. Here's the rhinoceros. Eh. Here's the platypus. Eh. Here's the deer, the gazelle. We'll write about that later. Those are all very nice, but not for me. Not for me. Now, I know, give me this one, okay? Allow me to, to, to entertain myself with this example. You've had the experience in dating, I imagine, of this one is not right for me. Sorry, I know you all know each other. Maybe this is too personal. (laughs) In high school, before you knew anyone in the room, you've had the experience of this one is not right for me. Yes, this one is not right for me. 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 Eventually, what do you begin to conclude? Something very painful, I think. Not that there are none right for me, but... I'm not right for any. Isn't that what you conclude? God is eliciting desire from Adam. He can't do anything about it, of course, which is why in the story he's put to sleep, God has to act. God makes Eve. He wakes up. There she is. And he says, at last. Right, John Paul II makes a big deal of this. At last. Like, I've been waiting for you. He wasn't waiting for her a page before. He didn't know that there was something to be missing because he didn't know that things were not good. God is teaching him that things are not right, not good because Adam cannot perform communion and he cannot perform the image of God quite yet. He cannot be as he ought to be, which is to be as God is one capable of full gift of himself to another and thus to constitute human communion, which is to be like God is because God just is endless outpouring communion. Now, Need Adam say yes to Eve? He says at last, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, like me, for me, I'm for her. She doesn't speak, of course. She speaks much later in the book. Much, much later in the book. And her, her answer is, is, is just as uh, momentous. Fiat, she says. Can, could Adam have said no? Yeah, of course. Does God go back to the drawing board? Does God say, oh. Not your taste? Well, you got more ribs. <laughs> Lilith is running around the garden somewhere and finally we'll get another one. You know, by the end, Adam's just like a hollowed out core. He's got one rib left, but he's like, Alas! I knew God could do it. Could Adam have said no? Of course he could have said no. What would he have been saying no to? To God? To that which God is offering him? to Eve, but in a most primordial sense, what would he be saying no to himself? He would be denying that he is for communion. Achadia is a story that fundamentally we are for ourselves and for our freedom and for our own self-constitution and for our own pleasures and our own satisfactions. And it fundamentally resists the good which asks us to give of ourselves. God is gift. We, created in the image of God, are for gift. The story of human fulfillment is gift. When you give yourself, you become more like God, more in keeping with the will of God, more in keeping with the image of God. And lo and behold, you become more. You don't become less when you give. You become more. In a similar way, you ought to take seriously the idea that we are not less merely because we receive and because we are dependent. The one who receives is not necessarily inferior or subordinate to the one who gives. It's not true, with all differences of analogy to the, remembered, that's not true in the relationship of the father to the son. The son is not less than the father, even though the son is begotten and the, and the father begets. In ordinary human relationships, to be dependent, to require another, to need another, to be full is mark that we are like God. Rocks need not such things. Chairs need not such things. Animals need such things only for reproduction. We need such things in order to be that which we are, which are social and political animals made for nuptiality to be in the image of God. The deep heartbeat story of the universe is not disenchantment and sloth, it's gifts. That's the narrative to remember, it's gifts, okay? That's the first. I got eight suggestions. That's one. They won't all be that long or that cool. That one's cool. If you think about that, maybe you disagree with that. um, If you think about that, I think that is a profound counter narrative to the stories that were told endlessly in our society, which is that everything is about power and use. No, it's not. God created for the things goodness, not for his good. Everything is about use and consumption. No, it's not. We're for communion. Everything is about our own freedom and our own satisfaction. No, it's not. You're meant for gift. And the more you give, the more you receive and the more you're free. It's a powerful counter story. Second, work. There is a story which is sometimes believed and it is not true that work is the result of the curse. Not true. The creation mandates that God gives to Adam and Eve and where he asks them to tend the garden and fill the garden happens before the curse. Work is a blessing. God blesses the animals. God blesses the human and asks them to fill the world. Yes? Now, that's not merely to have children, although it's that too. That is to be like God as a steward and subordinate creator in the world. Subordinate creator, of course, does not create in the same way that God creates. What does God do on days one through three? He creates form. What does he do on days four through six? He fills. He creates the temple, and then he adorns the temple. He builds the house, and then he decorates the house. And it's great. Everyone does this, yes? First you build the house, then you decorate the house. God, of course, determines not only what will happen, but how it will happen. And God has asked you and me and every human being to have a a vocation, which is to tend the garden, to fill the garden, to govern the garden, and to keep the garden. Work itself is part of how God continues to fill the the temple that he's created. You remember, of course, that um, I get get quite vexed about this. There's this kind of story that in the end, we go back to the Garden of Eden. No, there's nothing in the creation story which suggests that we are asked to keep the garden pristine. Like as if when God comes back, he's like, you moved a plant? I gave it to you this way. Keep it this way. Adam and Eve are not custodians of the gardens. They're the ones who govern the garden. They are being asked to fill it. And in the end, in the eschatological vision of the end, do we go back to a garden? No. We go to a city that has a garden in it. We go to a city that has a garden in it. And there's all sorts of things in that city which look an awful lot like the things that the kings of the earth bring into the city. Law, literature, poetry, human action, human art, gates, streets. Now, clearly this is something mystical, something analogical, but we are not placed on the earth to keep it exactly the same. We are placed on the earth to make it more, to develop it, to act in a way which brings it to its fulfillment and its perfection. The story, the basic metaphysical story of every created thing is it is seeking its act. Everything is seeking its act. And we are here as the sort of guardians. There's a great phrase from old literature, like an animal husband, right? A husband is one who tends the crops, tends the animals, right, to make them better. That's our task. That's what we're here for. Now, your work, then, you can view as fundamentally just something that you have to do. One damn thing after another. I know it's that time of the semester. You can admit it. How many of your assignments right now feel like one damn thing after another? They're not. You are Adam and Eve in the garden being asked by God to perfect the world through your action, to develop it, to adorn it. When you write your paper, I would suggest that you think that you're writing the paper as if it's going to be in the library in heaven forever. Now, would you write your paper differently? (laughs) <laughs> so there's a library just yeah 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 yeah, exactly yeah so there's a library just down the stairs and to the left or the right i'm not spatially good right imagine you walk into the anteroom of heaven i know it's not like this okay i know you walk into the anteroom of heaven and of course there'll be a library in heaven it's heaven how would you not have a books in heaven who would want to be there so you get and there's a library and you walk in it's it's god's library amazing And then you realize on the wall, the way that a parent or a grandparent would put a a child's drawing is your humanities Western sieve paper that you're working on right now. And God's like, check this out. Would you want it to be posted on God's fridge and God's library forever? Or is your work not quite up to it because you didn't view it as an opportunity to perfect yourself, perfect the world and adorn the temple of God forever? Work has an objective dimension, this is just laborum exergens, work has an objective dimension where we work to make things in the world better. But the primary test of work is the subjective dimension where what are we perfecting through our work? Us, that's the test of work. And the test of of the subjective dimension of work in the end is self gift, because that's the basic principle of the universe. When you work, you give yourself to the world. You give yourself to the work. You give yourself to what God has asked you to do. And there is a very scary parable told by our Lord about talents. Remember the one guy who just hides and buries his talents? And when the master comes back, he's like, didn't lose it. You get it back. Does the master say, hey, good for you. You kept your talent untarnished and here you have it back. Is that what, does that what he prays? Nope, you knew I was a hard taskmaster who reaps what he does not sow. Be gone, you bad servant. Work seems to be a pretty big thing. What sort of work is God asking? The same sort of work that our Lord did in Nazareth. Do you think our Lord made shoddy tables? Do you think he made drawers that didn't close all the way? He did all things well, we're told. He did all things well. Can you live the fully human life with full enchantment and joy if you think of your work just as something to do and complete and move on? No. So a solution to the frenzy of work is good work. Just good work. That's number two. Three, festivity. Festivity. As I understand the way we are now, we struggle to see that Genesis 1 is true. God says, it's good. If I'm right, if Willebec is right, if this whole story of Achati is right, one of the basic ways that the contemporary world inhabits the world is boredom, indifference. We sort of have a, a stiff arm to the world, like impress me, you're not impressing me. Remember I used the Michael Hanby essay that there's a kind of double knottingness. I'm not impressed by the world. I'm not the sort of being who can have wonder and surprise and the world. Is not the sort of thing which can wonder or surprise me. It's all just kind of pointless. Joseph Pieper says, and this this goes right to Professor Hibbs, or very similar to Professor Hibbs' sense of the the problem of images. Joseph Pieper says the problem that we face is we no longer know how to see. It's not a physiological problem, he says, although he does suggest, Pieper, that there's so many images that we don't know how to look anymore, actually. They come by in a flurry. We need to learn to see again, he says, and he suggests that can only be done if we learn an attitude of contemplation, which for people is an attitude of celebration, an attitude of love, an attitude of wonder. Contemplation can sometimes be viewed as overly intellectualized, as if what this is Aristotle, Book 10 of the Ethics, which is close, but not quite. It can often be viewed as if what contemplation is is doing math or geometry or sort of thinking the most abstract thoughts there are to think. Pieper suggests instead that, instead that contemplation is when you do something for its own sake, whatever it is, whatever it is, that's something like contemplation. And when you do things for its own sake, it's a kind of celebration. And Pieper says this. Pieper says the problem isn't that, we, that, we, that, that there's not things to contemplate or to celebrate, to approve of, from Probus, good, just like God in Genesis 1, to approve, it's good, I celebrate it. It's good that you were here. At last, she's here. Right? Celebration. But the problem is we're so existentially poor, we're racked, he says, with existential poverty, so that we count costs for everything. We don't have festivals, we have parties, so that we can work harder the next day. We don't have festivals, we have networking sessions. We don't have festivals. We have entertainment fests in order to relax. Now, Those things can all be fine in their own way. He says the challenge is not to throw a party, but to find people who can feast, who can really feast, and who do not merely count instrumentality, but do things for no other reason than it is good to do. He says that can only happen if we become existentially rich and learn to see with the eyes of love. And even have a kind of, not quite profligate wouldn't be the word. It's hard to imagine like the profligate being virtuous, but the sort of generosity which doesn't count cost. I love the story of the sower, uh, the parable of the sower and the seeds. I never used to get this story. The story used to make me very angry, in fact. So the sower, everyone's familiar with the story, right? The sower, of course, is, is God. God knows what's going to happen. He's omniscient and all. And yet he keeps throwing seeds on the rocky ground. Like, what a waste. You got good soil. You got thorny soil. You got soil that's thin and birds are going to come. And you got rocky soil. Why are you wasting the seed? I grew up in a ranch. Why are you wasting the seed on the rocky soil? And he's just throwing seeds with a wild abandon. My dad would have said, put it in the good soil, not the bad soil. And God, though, loses nothing by giving. Because he's inexhaustible. He's infinite. He's pure act. So he bestows this everywhere. We're asked, I think, to have something like that when we celebrate, to realize that not all of life is counting costs. Not all of life is instrumental. We can be generous enough to give for no reason than it is good to give. And that's it. And what reward may you hope for that? The reward is the action itself right? To give is to flourish. To give is to be. We're not giving so that down the road we might get rewarded. We are giving because it is that which constitutes human well-being and human flourishing. That's not the story of Achadia. That's a different story, isn't it? So I've suggested that we ought to remember that God is endless communion we ought to suggest that we're made for communion. We ought to suggest that work is self-gift and thus work is part of communion. And we ought to remember festivity and we ought to pay serious attention to festivals. We live in a barren time. It's a boring time out there. What did people do during COVID? They finished Netflix. I remember I a friend. He wrote me one day. He goes, finished Netflix. What am I going to do now? The world's amazing. People are amazing. Life is a miracle. We need to be able to celebrate. Fourth, books. Your students, after all. How can we have a narrative about communion and gift and work and festivity if there's not books? You need to be reading a lot more than you are and a lot better than you are. Now, here's the caveat. You're not reading nearly as much as you think you are. You're not reading as well as you think you are. Trust me. I've graded papers just like yours no offense but philosophers have not since the beginning of time been asking about the platonic ideas of the forms nope, not true they've been asking since Plato which is not the beginning of time books I've spent a lot of my career teaching in great books colleges or, or, or primary text departments and I've defended that to a lot of detractors for a lot of, long time and I, I'm less adamant about it than I used to be because I've become convinced by an argument that John Sr. made, which is that most of us, given the formation and the culture that we have now, are in fact not ready for the great books. We don't know how to read them and we don't know how to love them. And so we ought to pay serious attention to the pretty good books, to the good books. You've read The Republic. What is the education, How does the education begin in The Republic? With philosophy? With dialectics? With stories of the gods and the heroes, does it not? With music and gymnastics, and with simple ones, stories of gods and heroes, properly ordered ones, though. In fact, the pruning in the Republic is to get rid of the stories which created disharmony in the soul. And instead, Plato suggests that you need stories which form not necessarily the propositional truth of things, but the taste for things. You know, the root of wisdom in Latin really means to taste. Does it not? We think of a person with good taste, sound taste, discerning taste. What the good books do is recalibrate our tastes. Plato says that music... um, sinks into our soul more than anything else and creates the soul in a certain kind of harmony. It's in tune with things. And because it can be in tune with the good, it can resonate harmonically with the good and it recognizes the disharmony of the bad. I think a lot of us need to spend our time reading pretty good books like Peter Rabbit. Oh, that sounds so unserious. Have you read Peter Rabbit have you spent time with Plutarch's essays? Okay, that's probably a great book. Have you, read ta- have you spent time with The Abolition of Man, where Lewis reminds us that the head rules the stomach through the chest, and he would rather trust someone who was trained not to cheat, even though he didn't have an impeccable moral theory, than an impeccable moral theorist who had the wrong tastes? We need to form our tastes, and I suspect you can do that with some pretty nice books. Give me some good books. Let's hear a few. The books of your childhood that you really liked and they stick with you and they've resonated to create a kind of moral imagination. I think Peter Rabbit's amazing. I think Wind in the Willows is a really pretty good book. I think Narnia works. The Little Princess. The little princess. Secret Garden works. Give me some more. There's not going to be in the syllabus for Western Civ, but you need these first. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. It's Tom Sawyer. Prince. The Little Prince. I never liked that one, actually. I know I'm supposed to, but I never did. Can I say one from my teenagers I read in high school? Whatever. Cry the Beloved Country. Cry the Beloved Country. Beautiful story. Beautiful story. Others? Watership Down. Watership Down. Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. Well, you're probably in a great book's territory there. <laughs> Watership Down is fine. It's not a, it's not a great book. Anna Karenina. It's, it's at least a big book. <laughs> now, spend time cultivating your tastes, even with the simple things, which seem beneath you as an educated college student, but really are going to shape your eyes of love and your imagination so you can resonate with what is good. Um, the former president of Boston College once said this, In the Jewish and Christian biblical traditions, the measure of a man or woman was never to be found in the magnitude of their intellectual accomplishments. The measure is to be found rather in how sensitively, how responsively they exercise their freedom. We're not getting educated so we can be entertaining at cocktail parties. We're not reading books so you can win Jeopardy. We're not reading books so you can impress your grandparents back at home that you've read Anna Karenina. We're reading to be wise and to have taste, to have good taste. So, good books. Fifth, that was fourth. Fifth, develop a healthy ability to waste time well. Waste time well. Leisure, in other words. Leisure is not entertainment. Leisure is, in fact, a kind of contemplation where you do things for its own sake merely because it's good to do. It's a celebration. Learn to waste time well. Ours is the age of efficiency, of technique, of time management and multitasking in Twitter and Netflix and cable news networks and Wikipedia and YouTube and a thousand other frantic spectacles and devices. Faster, we think. More and more quickly. Quickly now manipulate the data, publish the paper, read the blog, comment on the news story, keep up to date, text a friend. I'm reading this quickly just to so you get the point, right? <laughs> text a friend. Helpless in that milieu is an education which seems incapable of keeping up with all the content. Who could? And who wants to anyway? And so contemporary education is forced to one of two mistakes to deal with all of this. The first is specialization, which forces us to know extremely uh, much about extremely little. And a kind of generalization, which allows us to know extremely much about extremely little or extremely little about extremely much. Both of those are mistakes. Slow down. You can take some time off to do good things. Don't just take time off to exhaust, to collapse exhausted on the bed or to flip through the screen. Do something which teaches you and reminds you, a practice which reminds you that you are not here merely for labor. You are here for gift and for fullness. The world of efficiency and busyness is the world of the machine. We're not machines. We're not constructed of pulleys. And a whole lot of what your universities will tell you to to do to deal with the anxiety of it all treats you as if you were a machine. Here's a technique to deal with the crippling anxiety that we have given to you and your culture has given to you by making you work too fast. No, don't do that. Spend an afternoon in a used bookstore. Go to a church. Tell a joke. I like going to paper stores. Waste time well. Do something beautiful. Sixth, of all things, a healthy respect for the Sabbath has to be kept. If you don't keep the Sabbath, at least in some way, you'll never be well. You must keep the Sabbath in some way. The contemporary university's disdain for the Sabbath is a mark that the contemporary university does not know what it's about. Doesn't know what it's doing. Has no idea why it's there. Is Olympian as opposed to human. Seventh, liturgy. For Christians, imagination is formed primarily through story-formed community, which is to say through the narrative, images, and symbols of the church. Worship is the basic tool of formation that we have. And as we worship, so we'll believe. It's an old, old maxim. The way you worship, that's what you'll believe. And also what you value. If our worship is self-centered, you'll be self-centered. If our worship is entertainment and just another form of consumerism, you will be entertained. Are we not entertained? Right? You will be a consumer of the God stuff. That doesn't work. If your worship is sentimental or kitschy, so will your souls be. If, however, your worship presents you with a majestic, noble, loving God who is communing and offering himself to you, you might become a little more like that. Even the simple insistence to worship the way that our spiritual fathers and mothers worship is an imaginative act of profound humility and reverence for community, and it's a kind of resistance and discipline against novelty and the new and the fast and the changing. It tells us that technique and advertising is not the whole story because I'm going to worship the way our ancestors worshipped. I'm not making a pitch for the Latin mass. Don't interpret that. I just mean we're going to pray with the church. That is not an argument for the Latin mass. I'm, I'm uninterested in that dispute. I find that dispute rather dull. It's a distraction. This is a claim to pray with the church. Pray with the church. Pray with the church. Eight. Here's my last one. I think this one might amuse you because I think this one is the most is the most serious of the suggestions for you to do. I think if you started here, you'd get a long way to discovering the other seven. Dance. I think a good university would spend a considerable amount of time teaching its students communal dance. Now that will change from time to time, place to place. There are different, going to be different cultural manifestations of this, right? If you live in one community, it might look like English contra dancing. If you live in another community, it might look like line dancing. If you live in another community, it might look like a waltz. If you live in another community, it might look like not claiming any particular form. But the dance of our society is overly eroticized and overly individualistic. You've been to the club, right? All the women in the middle of the floor, the men like wolves sort of prowling about going from lamb to lamb and then moving back to the outskirts and finding another kill. That's not going to overcome acedia. That is sloth. <laughs> don't do that. I don't mean that. I mean communal dancing. I understand that sounds quaint. Sounds quaint. So will you, will you, uh, forgive me for quoting myself. Here's something I wrote several years ago, but I can't find anything better than this, so I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Recently, my wife and some friends threw a party culminating in traditional English line dancing. I'd not done that before, and I went to the party somewhat hesitant, but there we all were, jammed together, too many people in an overheated room, stamping and clapping, bowing and twirling to the fiddle and the banjo and the guitar. Mostly, though, we were simply exulting, E-X-U-L-T. Exulting. I held my youngest daughter to her shrieking delight, as her older sister and I dosey doed and promenaded, and a triumphant son somehow convinced an older and quite pretty partner to stoop down to his level. Unlike other days, teenage boys could not escape their mother's arms. And I saw moms so jubilant and merry and relieved at this feat that they were paraphrasing Simeon, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. Grandfathers with granddaughters, husbands with their wives, friends with their friends, a few yearning adolescents with hearts beating to another more ancient reel. In that sweltering, overcrowded room, you could hear the music and see us leaping, joined in circles, feet rising and falling in mirth, the association of men and women holding each other by the hand or arm. We were, I was, drunk with it, flushed of body and soul, delighted with the others, thrilled with reality, approving. We were not, as I feared, ironical or skeptical or modern. We were just delighted. We approved in the old sense of the term. We recognized goodness, probus, and we loved it. Will that it should be, should exist, should continue. And in the handing off of one partner to the next, we handed on, traditio, the rhythms of the good realities that preceded us that we did not create, and we followed the patterns long set down by those under the corn nourishing the corn with their death. And it was good. On another occasion, I was with several dozen members of my parish celebrating Oktoberfest. There's later hosen and beer, a roasted pig, Oom um, papa, dancing wasn't really my thing. But my son was so proud, so roosterish as he led his sisters around the room, never mind that he didn't know any of the steps. He just danced because he loved it. Most strikingly, my youngest wove and bounced her way around, joining eyes and hands with any of the other dancers somewhat willy nilly. Hers was a way of affirmation, a deep and childlike sense that all was well, all was well, all manner of things were well, and thus she could keep the feast. Now, such universal approval is hardly shallow optimism, I don't think, nor does it deny the tragic. But still, all festivity, all joy, all gift lives in affirmation, and in asidia, we do not affirm. We need to learn to affirm the goodness of the world and to delight in it. Even the feasts that we keep for the dead depend on the fact that all is well in the end with the world. All's well. All's well. This too has been undone. Satan, death, and the de- or Satan, Satan and the devil, Satan and death have been defeated. There's no sting. It's all well. That's a deep approval. A deep approval. It's a way of turning to the world and saying, "It's good that you exist. It's good that you are here. At last." This is the opposite of anxiety and pointlessness. It's the opposite of acedia. It's the opposite of enclosing reserve. It's the opposite of the noonday demon. That's to say, it really is the way of love. Thanks. What are ways that we can keep the Sabbath in a society that often necessitates us to work one or multiple jobs to support ourselves? It's certainly gonna be the case. So one, we're not Sabbatarians. Right? We're not people who think that it is impossible to do things on the Sabbath. Right? That's, that's not our way. We know that we have some sort of obligation right, to, to, keep, to, to keep the great Thanksgiving. Um, and there are those, of course, who, who work. And there are those, of course, who do not have enough. And there are those who work more than is their share, even, let's say. Remember, though, all work can be viewed as a gift of self. So there's an idea which I float around with. I sort of borrow this from Wendell Berry, the idea of Sabbath work. Sabbath work is, is still work. It's not leisure. It's still work, but it's the sort of work which is done from the comportment of gift. So uh, when, when Amy and I were first married, before we even had children, there'd be days where I'd be you know schlopping sh- sh- back to the library to you know read some more, like pretend to study German, like I was ever going to get that. And she would say, "Do it for the babies." We didn't have any babies. We soon had babies. was doing it for the babies. There are many who work for the support of their family, for their children, for their community. And if that is done with real love, that is Sabbath work. The objective dimension of work is important. The subjective dimension of work is the fundamental test of work. The smallest thing done with the greatest love is the greatest thing. That too is Sabbath work. Now, I do think it's important that we, one of the reasons we keep the Sabbath is to remind ourselves that the Eucharistic feast, the gift of God, is the story of the universe. It's hard to remember that. Uh, it's easier to remember that sometimes when the physical reality reminds you. So, you know, if you've been to a town where the town is, seems to be built around the tabernacle, like here's the tabernacle, here's the church, here's the streets, here are the people. Right, it makes sense that the whole town is sort of outpouring, pouring out of the tabernacle and the altar. That's hard for us to do because our communities are not physically built that way. But we do have to remind ourselves that as we receive the great and generous gift of God, who gives Himself, my, my notion that the Father gives Himself without remainder, so that the Son can be very God, the Son gives Himself without remainder in the host and in the cup. That's Him. That's not part of him. That's not a little piece of him. That's him. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. Having received that, one can live that. People do. One finds ordinary saints all the time with incredibly challenging lives who do not have the leisure to take an entire Sunday off. They do it. You got lives harder than them? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you do. I don't know. If you do have time on Sunday, I would suggest a few other things. Cook. If you have access to a kitchen, cook. Invite a couple friends. Invite your grandma. Have your grandma play the piano. Dance with your grandma. Recite some poetry. Don't watch a movie that day. Sing a song. Sing a song that your grandma knows. That'll make her so happy. Invite your parish priest over. But your parish priest hasn't been over to somebody's house in a while. That he's dying of loneliness. We used to kiss priests' hands. Your parish priests. Um, we don't kiss hands so much anymore. Invite your parish priest over for a meal. Play some music. Recite a poem. That's Sabbath. It's festivity. Yeah. things. For some kind of, but you said like, no one ever for a meal. My church people literally go over to the rectory bringing bottles of food. That's great. That's a healthy. That's a healthy parish. It's not. It, I would suspect that's not the normal parish experience for a lot of parish priests. But it it's quite. It's quite funny. The priest has so much food that he literally gives food to other people. Good. I'm glad to hear it. That's a great. That's a great community. So that's not the main point. Just mentioned that because again, so I can my question is about, you said dance. Yeah. Why specifically dance? Um, why specifically dance is the question. Well, it's embodied. It's, um, it has roles to it. There are partners and differences where those partners and differences are acknowledged. It is um, community dancing under the watchful eyes of the adults in the tradition is, in fact, trained eroticism. It's trained eroticism. There's a beautiful scene in The Godfather. Remember when Michael runs off to Sicily? And he meets the Sicilian girl and he finally, you know, he sort of insults the father because he doesn't know what the, he's talking with This girl, but it's like the girl of the father. There's a scene, though, after they've, they've had their first date and he's at this end of the table and there's like all the uncles and all the aunts. And she's like with well, that end of the table and they sort of lock eyes. And that's that's the excitement of the first date. But then you see them walking through the, you know, the hills, not not holding hands, just walking side by side. You're like, You're Oh, wow. They're out by themselves. And then the camera pans back. You remember the scene? There's like 12 ants walking along behind them. <laughs> That's trained eroticism. There's no sense of, you know, there's like these Gnostic, non-gendered, non-sex bodies. That's a man and a woman under the watchful eyes of the community. Communal dance has always been about that. I was paraphrasing Elliot there about loam feet, country feet, stomping in country mirth. i signifying marriage, a commodious and dignified sacrament. It's T.S. Eliot nourished by those long under the corn. So it also is a teaching and tradition. I'm a big fan of the work of Augusto Del Noche. Del Noche claims that the way that most people learn real metaphysics is not by reading their metaphysics handbook. The way that most people learn metaphysics is through family and the, and the training of the sexuality and the eroticism of family over time. So when you have a family, you're already told that there's a story behind you, Yes. Right. My mom used to tell me all the time, do this for grandma. My grandmother had grown up in a dirt house in the Canadian prairies, Super poor. Do this for grandma. When I got my Ph.D., my grandma said to me, you're a doctor. I'm Like, oh, well, yeah, not like you mean like I'm going to be on the plane. There's a metaphysical emergency. You don't know whether there's free will. I'm here. <laughs> not like you mean, grandma. And she said, but you wear a coat, right? So I always wear a coat. <laughs> I always. I don't teach without a coat. Because Grandma. I owe something to Grandma, who really, really worked so I could go to. She had no idea what I did, what I did. But my life is always, always, already about my children and my grandchildren. My great—I pray for my grandchildren who do not exist. I pray to the guardian angel of my children's future spouse if they marry. I, mean, I got some choice words for him. Like, get these guys in line. What one's learning is tradition. Because there's a handing on of obligations in family. Your life is not your own. You have duties to the past. There's encumbrances to the past. And there are encumbrances to the future, which is a training in tradition and eternity, Del Noche says. If you remove that, you remove the metaphysics, which we need to make sense of most of the rest of the story. And dance trains metaphysics about as well as anything else for the average person in a lived, communal, embodied way because it's rooted in the past, it's rooted in community, it's really fun, and it's trained eroticism under the watchful eyes of order. Can't, I don't think you can get better than that. And a, a university which cared about its students and their eroticism and their tradition and their health would teach them to do that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have the dean of DEI, you'd have the dean of, de, of like communal dance. I exaggerate slightly, but not much. I'm pretty, I think that's true. Okay, thank you all. So good to have spent some time with you.